we are still in the Sermon on the Mount, and I know today is the very first day of Lent, and, and typically uh, we would switch over to a Lenten sermon series, but Lent really is an opportunity uh, for us to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, and then give ourselves to being who we are in Christ. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount really is one massive reminder of who God has made us into And it will lead us right up until Easter Day. And so we'll continue uh, to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Looking today at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. That can be found on page number 1,500. And when I get there, I'll tell you. 1,501 still. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are times in life where we actually don't want to stand out. For example, you're invited to a costume party, but you're the only person who realizes that you don't really dress up for this costume party, and so you're the only one in a costume. Other times uh, it's difficult to stand out is when you're standing with your group of friends and you recognize that maybe the conversation has slipped into gossip. And so then you're wrestling in your heart of, well, do I say something? Do I stay quiet? Do I walk away? And why is it so hard for us to stand out in these kinds of ways? And, And I think the reason is, is because we fear being rejected. We fear being the one who is different than everyone else. We fear being on the outside looking in. Although there are times where we really do like to stand out. For example, it's the championship basketball game and and we score the most points. Then that's okay. I don't mind standing out in that situation. Or you happen to break the quarterly sales record for your company. Another really good opportunity to stand out. And I think the reason we don't mind standing out in in those ways is because there's something kind of glorious about us. And and we like to kind of bask in that moment where everyone thinks we're as great as, well, most of the time we don't really think we're that great, but we like other people to think we're that great in those moments, right? And in our passage today, Jesus tells his disciples that we will stand out. As people who have entered his kingdom by receiving the promises that he offers to us in Christ by faith, as people who have the blessings of the kingdom that we looked at last week, people who are poor in spirit, mourning, meek, merciful, pure in heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, rejoicing when persecuted, as people like that, we will be distinct from the world, but not for our own glory. 
We are distinct from the world so that we will bring glory to God. And so Jesus begins by telling us, you are the salt of the earth. There's a couple things to point out here. First, Jesus is teaching his disciples. Remember, he's talking specifically to them. He pulls them aside up on the mountain. Yes, the crowds are, are likely listening in, but, but this is something that he is telling to those who have believed the good news about the kingdom, and he's telling them what they are. He's not telling them, he's not telling us what we have to become. He's telling us what we are now by virtue of our faith in him. And he's not talking to individuals here. Uh, the word you there in Greek is plural. Uh, English, we don't have a plural you. We, we say you when we're talking about one person or when we're talking about a hundred people, unless, of course, you're from the south, then you, then you say y'all. They, they figured out a way to get a plural you into the English language. And so what Jesus is saying here is, y'all are the salt of the earth. If you have entered the kingdom of heaven by faith, you all together as the church are the salt of the earth. And so what does it mean that we are the salt of the earth? Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us how to be the salt of the earth, why we're the salt of the earth. He, he just tells us very plainly that we are the salt of the earth. But the reality is this, this metaphor is so pregnant with meaning that it's not that difficult to stop and, and think about what Jesus is saying here. Because what is salt? Salt has two primary uses. There's all, all kinds of other uses for salt I found from the Google this week, but the two primary uses of salt are to preserve food and to give flavor to food. So if you leave meat out alone, it's not long before the meat begins to rot and to spoil. And then when that happens, uh, you're going to get flies and maggots and a stench that can take over an entire house. And so apart from salt... That's what the world is like. The world is full of sin and decay. And our Bible reading this year, for those of you who are uh, together with me on this journey through the New Testament, we, we just recently read through Romans chapter 1. And there Paul talks about how the most basic sin the world has is suppressing their knowledge of God and then refusing to give him thanks for all the wonderful good things that God gives us in this life. Every breath you and I take is, is a gift from God. Every pleasure, every joy of this life is something that God and his grace has given to us. And everyone in the world knows this without having to be told, Paul tells us. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul is saying that everyone in this world knows God is there. They know it. They understand that he's there. It's clear to them because of what's been made. 
Earlier, Paul says the world has to actually suppress this knowledge by their wickedness. And the decay begins then when they suppress that knowledge and refuse to give God thanks. And then the stench and the flies and the maggots come as thoughts become futile and hearts become dark. Eventually, Paul says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then Paul gives a whole host of examples of what it looks like to be given over to a depraved mind, including sexual immorality, but also envy and murder and gossip and slander. And so when Jesus tells the church here that you are the salt of the earth, what he's saying is, we slow down this process. Our mere presence in the world is meant to preserve the world from rotting and decaying into a world full of people with depraved minds doing what ought not to be done unrestrained. So how does the church work as a preservative? Well, we all know the difference when a group of people has someone in it who has values and integrity. Someone who's not only open about those values, but lives them out with integrity. If that kind of person is in a group of people, that group will begin to modify their behavior accordingly. We've all seen the guy who cusses like a sailor, and then all of a sudden there's somebody who, who doesn't. And that person's in the group. Pretty soon the guy who cusses like a sailor is saying things like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to offend you. Someone who uh, would ordinarily cheat on their group project at school has someone like this in their group, and, and now they're inclined not to cheat. If for no other reason, then they know this person with values and integrity might be compelled to tell the teacher what had happened. If someone usually steals from work by sneaking things out the loading dock in the back, and then their employer hires somebody like this with values and integrity to manage the loading dock, that kind of behavior will stop. But the truth is, even moral and non-religious people, or religious people like Mormons and Jews and Orthodox Jews, can have this kind of influence on others. So this isn't all Jesus is talking about. This kind of saltiness that really preserves the world must be something more supernatural. And given the context, Jesus is pointing back to what he has just said in the Beatitudes. Religious people and moral people are great. They, they keep the law and order of our land. They are one of the ways God demonstrates his common grace to us. But they're not salt. The kind of preserving Jesus is talking about here goes so much deeper than just being a nice person who keeps wicked people on their toes. Because the other thing that salt does is it brings out the flavor of something. So not only do we keep the world from rotting and decaying, but we do so by bringing the flavor of the good news about Jesus. We're poor in spirit. So we're humble and we're not judgmental. We mourn over our sins, so we seek forgiveness and reconciliation 
even from non-Christians. We're meek and humble and gentle. We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not just to justify ourselves by our own personal opinions or by touting all the ways that we try and make the world a better place, but by truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're merciful and pure in heart, not in a legalistic, self-righteous way, but truly and authentically in such a way that we can share about Jesus and the mercy that he has shown us without sounding like a sales job to meet the pastor's evangelism goals. We are humble and merciful peacemakers who are pure in heart, not out of duty to appease an angry God, but out of delight for a God who loves us and who gave himself up for us. And so when the world says, oh, those people, they don't get drunk, they don't have sex before marriage, they don't watch pornography, which is how we ought to be, because drunkenness and immorality are definitely desires of the flesh. We should definitely be known as people who do not do those things. Paul is clear in Galatians 5 when he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when that's all we're known for, or when that's what we're known for most, then we're actually not salty enough. The world needs more saltiness than that so they can have and taste the full flavor of Christ. Being the salt of the earth means we are the people who are so aware of our own failure and sinfulness that we don't make other people feel like we're better than them. And not only do we mourn over our sinfulness, but we confess it to each other with love and grace and forgiveness for the healing that confession brings. We mourn over the sin in each other's lives. We're meek and humble and we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we are so desperate to know God and be known by God that we press into each other without condemnation for strength and accountability, bearing each other's burden of sin and seeking every opportunity that we have to receive the grace of God to us in Christ. We're merciful with people, full of kindness and compassion and patience. We're pure in heart. We don't just pretend to follow all the rules, but we truly delight to please Jesus with our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. We pursue peace even to the point of being willing to lose what is rightfully ours. And when people lie about us and insult us, we rejoice knowing that ours is the kingdom of heaven. But, Jesus says, If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. After last week when I talked about hydrogen and oxygen, I thought I would not talk about chemicals again in another sermon, but but here we are. Uh, Apparently, pure sodium chloride cannot actually lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' time, the kind of salt they had access to was mixed with other minerals. And so what would happen is the sodium chloride could dissolve over time, and all that was left was this other mineral that still looked like salt, but had lost its saltiness because the sodium chloride was gone. And so it was good for nothing, except to be thrown out onto the road. And so as one commentator said, he said, cease to be different 
and we cease to be Christians. But those who've come to Christ by faith, with true repentance, mourning over their sin, who've been welcomed into the kingdom by no effort of their own, they are the salt of the earth because that's what Christians are. By the grace of God, through the gift of faith that enables us to embrace the promises of God, we are salt. We don't have to become salt. We look to Christ and all that he is and all that he's done, and then we are salt. And it's not moral excellence that makes us salt. It is simply believing in Jesus. Sometimes the saltiest thing in the kingdom of heaven is a broken sinner who has never loved God or his neighbor, embracing the love and forgiveness of God. And when that happens, that stops the decay and brings out the flavor of the gospel. And we are light. Jesus goes on. You are the light of the world. So with the salt metaphor, Jesus is, is emphasizing the influence that Christians have. We preserve the world from decay and we live in such a way that the effect of Christ in us is attractive. And now with the light metaphor, this is a metaphor of both guidance and exposure. So there are two reasons to be in the dark. One, you're lost. Two, you're hiding. If you're lost, light is a gift to guide you out. And if you're hiding, light is also a gift to find you out. Either way, light is a wonderful gift because sometimes we need our sin exposed for us before we realize how actually lost we are. We thought we were hiding, but we were really lost. And so in Scripture, darkness is associated with sin. Earlier, when we looked at Romans chapter 1 and the decaying nature of sin described there, Paul actually calls the decay being darkened. He says, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. A couple weeks ago, when we were learning about the kingdoms of this world in contrast with the kingdom of heaven, we looked at Colossians 1 where Paul says that Christians are those who are giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So the kingdom of light <clears throat> is the kingdom of the son he loves. Excuse me. <clears throat> the very same kingdom Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven and everything else is darkness. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Sin is darkness. God is light. We are children of the light, called out of the darkness to walk in the light. And since we are light, Paul says, live as children of the light. And so in this morally confused world where it's easy to be consumed by money and entertainment and pleasure, where 
people really do call good evil and evil good because we are confused as a culture about the nature of men and women to the point where our society approves of mutilating the bodies of children. We are confused about what we ought to do with the gifts and the resources that God gives us. So we celebrate greed, build walls to keep out the poor. That's, a, that's darkness. And we are the light in that darkness. Now, like with the you are the salt of the earth metaphor, the you here is plural too. Again, Jesus is saying, y'all are the light of the world. Now, as we've seen, light is a metaphor for God and righteousness, and darkness is a metaphor for sin and Satan. John tells us in 1 John that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. The Psalms tell us that his word is a light into our path. Jesus is the light of the world, and yet we are the light of the world. So how does all these light metaphors relate? Well, to start, all we have to do is go right back to Matthew chapter 4 that we looked at a few weeks ago. If you remember, Jesus was coming out of his temptation in the wilderness, and then John the Baptist was arrested, and then Jesus went back up to Galilee to begin his ministry and to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 that Matthew quotes, which says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so Jesus, Jesus is the great light. His teaching and his miracles reveal that he is the king of heaven who brings the kingdom of heaven with him because Jesus is heaven. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. And so naturally the kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus is. In John chapter 8, Jesus stands up in a crowd during the Feast of Booths, and he declares, I am the light of the world. And so if Jesus is the light of the world, in what way is the church also the light of the world? Well, in that verse, in John chapter 8, where Jesus declares that he is the light of the world, he goes on to tell us how the church is also the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so if we follow Jesus, we will not walk in darkness, which means Our lives are not characterized by the deeds of darkness because walking in darkness is walking in sin and evil. But those who follow Jesus will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. And so Jesus is the light of the world. He is the great light that dawned on the world when he came into the world to save his people from their sins. And we become the light of the world when we follow him. So it's like this. In the sky... There's the great light, which is the sun. And then at night, there's this lesser light, which is the moon. Well, where does the moon get its light from? It gets its light from the sun. So in the middle of the darkness of night, the moon is giving light because it is reflecting the light of the sun. And so that's how we, as the church, are also the light of the world. As we look and behold Christ and all that he's done for us, we will reflect his light to this dark world. Jesus also compares us to a city on a hill. He simply says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Christian, we are the light of the world. 
Simply by receiving the good news of what God has done for sinners in Christ, we have become a city on a hill, reflecting the light of Jesus to a dark and sinful world, and God has set us up on a hill to guide the lost out of darkness to Christ, to expose the deeds of darkness that take place in the shadows of this world, and that is who we are. Now, that doesn't mean we go around wagging our finger and pointing out everyone's sin. Because it's the good news of what God has done for sinners in Christ that shines out of us that exposes sin. The mere fact that salvation required the death of the Son of God combined with the light of conscience that everyone has by virtue of being made in the human or made in the image of God as a human is enough to expose the truth of the heart. And then the law of God comes and drives sinners to Christ for forgiveness. Now, there may be some in this room who are uncomfortable with the idea of being the light of the world because how we began, we don't like to stand out. It's weird to think of ourselves as a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We don't want to be that different. We don't want to stand out quite that much. In fact, if we're honest, we kind of want to fade to the background. So first of all, let me just say, I'm not saying that we all need to be open-air preachers. Although Jesus is calling some to do that. Jesus is also not saying that we will never sin. He's saying that we are a guide to the lost and light in a world covered by darkness and that there is something distinct about us. And so if our coworkers, our family, our friends, or those we go to school with would be shocked to discover that we're Christians, then God is simply calling us to repent and believe that our sins are forgiving, and that we are the light of the world. He's not calling anyone to become the light of the world. That is impossible. He's calling us to look to him, and we will reflect his light, like the moon looks to the sun and reflects its light, which is why he goes on and says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in our modern world, sometimes we can think like, oh, you light a lamp and you put it under a bowl and then we take the bowl off and oh, the light's still there because it was lit with a bulb and electricity. But in Jesus' world, if there was ever a lamp, it was a lamp that had a flame on it. And what happens to a flame if you put it over a bowl or under a bowl? It goes out. There's no oxygen. And, And so Jesus is saying nobody does that. Nobody puts a lights a lamp, and then puts a bowl on it. It would, be, it would be absurd, the height of absurdity. He says, no, instead, they take that lamp, and they put it up high, so the light from that lamp will go as far as the light from that little lamp can possibly go. Therefore, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus renovates our life when we come to him and when we trust in him. He does so in order order to draw others to himself through us. (laughs) Now this verse has actually been used to promote a very false idea. There's a Christian slogan, maybe you've heard it before, that goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. I've even said this before. 
And there's something true about it. And here's what's true about it. Our good deeds that we do that flow out of our belief in the gospel, they do say something about our belief in the gospel. So, so I think that's what's trying to be said here. But think about it this way. Imagine a Roman soldier. He, 2,000 years ago, the, the, the battle was victory, and he rides his horse back to his hometown so he can bring the good news of the victory to the people in his hometown. And he rides through the gate, and he gets off his horse, and everybody's like, what happened? How did it go? And he's like, no, I not going to talk about it. And he gets his broom and he just starts sweeping. I mean, it would be absurd. It's impossible for good news to be shared if it's not spoken. Paul says in Romans 10, he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? These are all rhetorical questions. He's saying, it's, it's not possible to call on somebody you've not believed in. It's not possible to believe in somebody you've never heard of. And you can't hear without someone preaching to you. So somebody has to be sent to preach the good news. The gospel can only be heard, believed, and understood if we speak the good news. Now, I, like you, get every bit as nervous when I realize I'm in an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Oh, my heart starts beating fast, and I think, oh no, maybe I should be sharing the gospel right now. I, should, I think I know something that this person needs to hear, and oh no, this, this is the moment, and what, what am I going to say? And then, and then I just start saying things, and may, maybe it's the gospel, maybe it's not, because I'm so nervous. So I get it. I understand that anxiety. And I, like you, would love to let myself off the hook and just say, hey, you know, huh, I perform good deeds, and and that's how I'm sharing the gospel, and so I never have to re- re- risk the kind of rejection or awkwardness that I fear would happen if I did share the gospel. But like I said, it is impossible to share the gospel without using words. Now, this isn't one of those sermons where I tie a weight on you all to go out and hand out tracts at a bus station and share the gospel, but Jesus will close his gospel this way. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is our mission. Our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the thing about it is my wife said to me today, this week, she said, I really want you to tell us how to be salt and light. Don't just tell us that we are salt and light and then, and then send us all home. I want you to tell us how to be salt and light. Give us some application. So I thought about it. I thought, man, it really is difficult to, to tell a congregation full of people how to be salt and light because, because the specifics of what it's going to look like to, to be salt and light for you and for me are, are so different. Maybe... For you, it's praying for a non-believer and asking God for wisdom and boldness to share the gospel with that person. Maybe it's inviting them to church, and Easter is coming up, which many people are, are more prone to say yes to an invitation 
to church on Easter than any other day of the year. And so for some here this morning, the reality that you are salt and light means you can be bold in sharing the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with someone that you know and love. But for others today, being salt and light might simply mean repenting today. Maybe your life is totally out of balance and you need to reset and be honest with someone about where your life is right now. You have some sin to confess so that you may be healed, as James tells us in his epistle. And you need to make church more of a priority so you can come here and be encouraged by the mercy and grace of God every Sunday because God is showing you right now that you are more weak than you ever imagined. Because the grace of God is so great, humble repentance in the midst of moral failure is so salty and reflects the light of Christ every bit as much or more than our moral excellence. So if there's someone here who's been sinning like a drunken sailor and being salt and light for you today would be to simply believe that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ, don't wait until tomorrow to repent of your sins and to believe that he has forgiven them all and that in Christ you are salt and light. The scriptures say today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And yet there's some here this morning who are being called to be faithful in the ordinary, monotonous things that God has put on our plates. Maybe being salt and light means being patient with your circumstances. Maybe it just means being patient with that person at work who just bothers you. Maybe it's faithfully enduring the trial that God has called you in. See, when, when the world sees Christians faithfully enduring trials and suffering, that is so salty. And that shines the light of Christ brilliantly. Every one of us has different circumstances, different gifts, different callings. But if we are citizens of the kingdom by grace through faith, who know the blessings of the kingdom, and who are salt and light, then we can trust that God is calling us in some way to trust him that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are who he says we are, and we will be who he says we are. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are the one at work in us to will and to do. We're so encouraged to know what you've made us into and that we can be salt and light from the very beginning of our Christian walk throughout our Christian walk and that it's not moral perfection that makes us salt and light it's repentance and faith and dependence on you for forgiveness and for transformation you are our king you are the one to whom we look we are like the poor moon just a blank rock in the middle of space. But when we look to you, when we look to Christ, we can light up the dark sky. So help us, Father, help us to be people who do not take our eyes off Christ and all that he's done for us.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.